So last week in this uh, Christmas season, we talked about, um, you know, there, there are concerning the announcement of birth and, and even prior to that, all of the prophetic words that were some 700 to 1,000 years before, and even back to the, as far back as the book of Genesis, the prophetic words about a Messiah coming. And so last week we, we focused on uh, the, um, the, the word and the event surrounding the birth of Jesus about praise. And we talked about when the wise men who had traveled, you know, maybe thousand, a thousand miles or more showed up, uh, they came to worship this newborn king. And uh, when the shepherds were out in the field and the heavenly host began to proclaim you know, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. We'll read that again in a moment. But they began to praise God. The heavenly host began to praise God. And then the shepherds, when they heard that a Savior had been born in Bethlehem, they went to Bethlehem to see this thing that had been spoken to them by the angels. And then it says that they came back praising God and rejoicing. We talked about Simeon in the temple when, you know, he held the, when Mary and Joseph brought the baby in to do what was required to do under the law, that, uh, that Simeon took the little child, the little baby in his arms, and he began to praise God. We talked about uh, Zechariah breaking out in a song of praise, and Elizabeth, and Mary, and we actually focused on Mary's song last week about praising, you know, how it just seemed to be, this one word seemed to be so... Um, you know, um, so pronounced in, in both the, the Gospel of Matthew and in Luke. But today I want to talk about another word that we find there and also found written in the Old Testament, and it's about peace. And, uh, you know, the, the word peace, if, depending on the translation of Bible that you're using, uh, occurs in the Bible 429 times. And... Um, let me just begin, um, and I'm just going to, you know, just kind of highlight this this morning before we actually just really get into the Word. Uh, the prophet Isaiah, looking forward into a time, into a point in time, to a point 700 years beyond where he was in, in time, and began to prophesy, and these are the words that he spoke 700 years before Jesus was even born in Bethlehem. It says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And then in Luke chapter 1, we see, again, um, the Word of God, and it says, And you, child, will be called the prophet. This is uh, Zechariah speaking about his son, John the Baptist. Uh, you'll be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercies of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light, listen to this, to give light to those that sit in darkness and the shadow of death, and to guide our feet in the way of peace. And there's so many different directions that you could go with this message. I don't know if you, you remember or not, but uh, just if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, and we think about, you know, these correlations between the natural and the spiritual. And it says that in Genesis chapter 1, that when God showed up, that the Spirit of God 
It says that the, the, the earth was void and without form. It says in the beginning. <clears throat> That's how it starts out. In the beginning, the earth was void and without form. And the Spirit of God hovered over the earth. It's just like the Spirit of God. It's like I'm seeing this, this thing there, this ball that's there that God had created. And that he comes and he comes to give it life. And it says that, you know, the first thing that God created, it says the earth was, was void and it was full of darkness. And it says the first thing that God created was light. And he said, let there be light. And then, you know, you fast forward to Isaiah and then we see kind of a, a spiritual takeoff on almost these same words. It says the people, not the earth, not the, not the physical planet, but the people living the land, you know, set in darkness. And the people that were living in darkness and set in this great darkness have seen a great light. And then we fast forward again from Isaiah 700 years forward to the time of, Je to the time of Jesus. And in John's gospel, it says that, talking about Jesus, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was with the beginning of God. And it goes on to say that, that he was, that, that men set in darkness, and men liked darkness, they loved darkness, that they preferred darkness because their deeds were evil, because we were all sinful people. And that Jesus himself says that he, he was the light of the world, that he came to be that light, to show men the way, the truth, and the life, that you, know, that you didn't have to live your life, your life in darkness, that he has come to give you, to, to take you and deliver you from the power of darkness you know, into light. And, you know, there's an interesting, even going back to the time of Exodus, and I'm kind of rambling this morning, but God, see this, that, you know, there were ten plagues that, that Moses, through the hand of God, brought upon the, on the land of Egypt. Well, the ninth plague was that darkness covered the entire land. And then the tenth plague was the death of the firstborn son. And, and so, that, I mean, there was weeping and wailing all throughout, you know, Egypt because of this judgment that God had brought on the land. And then if you'll remember, when Jesus was being crucified, and as he's hanging on the cross, and he's already, you know, looked down at those men and women that have crucified him, and he's hanging there, and crucifixion, I mean, to, even today, it's still probably the worst form of punishment, capital punishment, that you could inflict on a person. But in that day, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, you know, before, the, the, you know, he was put on the cross at 9 o'clock in the morning. And the Bible says that from, you know, the, from, the, uh, from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock in the afternoon, that darkness covered the land. A, an intense darkness. In the middle of the day, when you would expect the sun to be shining, darkness covered the land. And then, you know, then we see the firstborn of God giving up the ghost. It says that he gave up the spirit and he was taken off the cross at about three in the afternoon. But before he did that, while he was hanging on the cross, and he looked down upon those that had just beat him, uh, I mean, just beyond belief. The beating alone could have probably killed him. And uh, he was spat upon. He was um, mocked. He was ridiculed. And looking down from the cross in, in just this most intense pain with nails in his hands and his feet, he looks down and he says, Father, 
forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And so, coming back to our, our story about death, because, uh, and I'll tie this together for us in just a moment, but it's because of his death, it's because of his death and burial and resurrection that we today can have peace with God. It says that in that country, and this is the story about the shepherds again, shepherds were living in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were greatly afraid, and the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For to you, or for there is born to you this day in the city of David, that's Bethlehem, of course, that's where David was from. Uh, to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, or rags, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a, with the angels a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and listen to this, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but, you know, why we act the way that we act. And I, I'll never forget the story that Nina told, you know, uh, told me many years ago. I think I've shared it with you. You know, when the, you pull into a gas station, uh, you know, if there's two pumps, you always pull the, I mean, the, the, the right thing to do out of courtesy is pull to the front pump. Well, there was a car that was in front of her that had, uh, you know, uh, that was parked there, and she pulled in behind him. And uh, as soon as she started pumping gas, that guy got in his car and drove off. And then another car pulled up behind her and really started yelling at her, you know, why didn't you pull up to the front pump, you know? And, uh, you know, it was, you know, it's like, you know, why do people say things like that? You know, why, you know, and he, so he goes into the, to the store, I guess, to pay for his gas and he comes out. And then he's been apologized and he begins to tell her about all the trouble and the strife that he's been through in his, his life, and I can't remember, he'd gone through a divorce and, you know, had some financial problems. And so, you know, it's like sometimes we want to react when, you know, we, we expect everyone to be like, you know, like we want to be, you know, treated, um, you know, or, you know, on those days that when we're full of joy and gladness and we've got peace in our heart, we accept, expect everybody to be just like us. But we never stop to consider what an individual might be going through that would cause them to have a different kind of an attitude. Now, let's just think about that this morning. Let's think about, you know, what is it that sets people off? What do you think? What do you think could set someone off and get them out of that, that place of peace into a place of just being bitter and angry and frustrated? What do you think, Leo? Huh? Ignorance, okay. Anybody else? Fear? Go ahead, shout out. Finances, okay. Hurt? Okay. Stress, okay. Yeah, all of those things are, I mean, finances are, you know, marriage, our relationships, our jobs, you know, the tension, the things that we have to put up. And I don't think that we ever think of that. It's just like, you know, you got my grill and I'm going to get back in your grill, you know. And it's, and it's like, you know, and it has a way. But the Bible says 
that a soft word or a soft answer can turn away wrath. And it says, the Bible says that even when a man's ways are right before the Lord, that even his enemies, listen to this, even his enemies will be at peace with him. And so I want us to consider, want us to consider that when we're talking about peace. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 26 that God will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him because he trusts in the Lord. So the peace is, you know, the peace comes as uh, the result of a cultivated life that God will give us, the result of living in obedience to God. When we're living in obedience to God, then God will give us peace. But if you're living a life contrary to the life that God wants you to live, you can't have peace. I mean, it just seems to disappear. And it all started. It just seems like it all started back in the garden. And the Bible says, listen to this from Isaiah again, Isaiah 57, it says, Peace, peace to him that is far off, and to him that is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. And so, as a result of of not having peace, you know, the byproduct of not having peace is hatred and war and divorce and prejudice and churches dividing and splitting, anti-Semitism and slander, that's the assassination of somebody's character, uh, suicide, self-hatred. But peace is really a gift from God. And he gives it to those that bow their knee to his son Jesus. And the Bible even says, blessed are the peacemakers. And so in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, it says, therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God. It's not something that we can work for. It's not something that we can do. We don't work for peace. We work to have a relationship with God. And as a result of our having a relationship with God, then peace comes. You know, that um, in Psalm uh, verse thir- chapter 37, verse 39, actually 38, and the psalmist writes this. He talks about it, depending on what version you have, but he talks about Mark the blameless man. And, this, and when he talks about peace in this passage of Scripture, he's talking about peace that we have right now while we're living on earth. And then he talks about these, uh, a future peace, this eternal peace that we'll have um, you know, when we're with the Lord, living with the Lord in, in eternity. But the, there, when we think about peace, I know that you might be thinking about all the different types of peace in the world. And you know, for those angels to declare peace on well, if it's God's desire, peace on earth, it's God's, you know, you know, I hear people say all the time, well, if, you know, if there really is a God, why doesn't he stop this war? Why doesn't he stop this child from, you know, from being sick or this person from dying? You know, if God is really there, why doesn't, if he's, if he's as big as the Bible says he is, why doesn't he, he intervene? And the Bible tells us it's simply because we have a free will. And we see Adam and Eve in the garden, they had a free will. I mean, they had perfect peace with God. God came with them, walked with them every day in the garden. I mean, God was with them. Uh, if you think about the Genesis story, I mean, the lion did lay down with a, with a lamb. I mean, every, there were, you know, animals didn't eat animals in that time. Uh, you know, they, they were all vegetarians. And, I mean, everybody got along. It was perfect peace and perfect harmony until Adam and Eve were disobedient to God by violating the covenant of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then they broke their relationship with God, and when they broke their relationship with God, then peace kind of went out the window. And the animals are now terrified of man because of sin, and uh, man has got this broken relationship with God, 
and he doesn't know what to do with it, doesn't know how to get back. And, and we keep trying to get back, with, back to God, and God's saying, I've made a way. I've made a promise to you. In fact, in Genesis chapter 3, it says that, that God makes a promise. This is the first prophetic promise of the Messiah coming. And this Messiah, and in this Messiah alone, he will bring peace. Webster defines peace like this. Number one, freedom from war and civil strife. A treaty or an agreement to end war. Freedom from public disturbances or disorder or public security, law and order. Freedom from, the, from disagreement or quarrels, uh, harmony, concord, uh, an undisturbed state of mind, an absence of mental conflict, serenity, quiet, tranquility. To make peace is to bring about reconciliation between two parties to end hostility. And that's exactly what God did through his son. And, you know, as we, uh, and I think about this, I think about, uh, I read this story, uh, the phrase, the phrase, peace for our time. It was spoken on uh, September the 30th, 1938, when the British Prime Minister Chamberlain, in his speech concerning the Munich Agreement, um, he, uh, he also echoed this phrase that was spoken by Benjamin Disraeli, uh, who upon returning from uh, the Congress in Berlin in 1878. But uh, Chamberlain said that I've just returned from Germany with peace for our time. It's primarily remembered for its ironic value because less than a year later, uh, you know, Great Britain was invaded. You know, this peace agreement. And I can remember, and some of you will remember history, that it was about three or four days before uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor that ambassadors from, from Japan were negotiating a peace treaty uh, in Washington you know, with our Congress and with our president during that time, talking about peace. And several days later, you know, the bombing of Pearl Harbor happens. Uh, and our, our government is not innocent either. Uh, we have over, I read last night that there's been over 500 peace agreements that our government has made with the Native Americans and broken every one of them. And so, you know, what's written on paper is not really that good, but unless it's written on God's paper and it's in God's word. And then we can trust in it. But it's, you know, from man, it's just like, you know, we can't seem to get along. Um, so we talk about this type of peace between nations. We talk about civil peace when people are obeying God's law and there's no public uh, uh, disturbances. We talk about individuals' peace when people are not having conflict and quarrels among themselves in relationships. And then we talk about one's personal peace, the state of mind where there is an absence of mental conflict and serenity. Um, you know, and we th when I was on that, just about this, I, I, I read again, you know, just I think about it, why? And I want to just focus on that just for a moment. Why don't we have peace? I go back to the story in Genesis. Um, why is there discord and anguish, anguish and conflict and disharmony, disorder, crimes in the world? And the answer to that question is very simply sin, sin. Is when we broke relationship with God, we lost our peace, and we lost peace with God, and everything just seems to be you know, just seems to unravel at that point. And because there's so uh, because of sin, there's little peace in the world. And the Bible clearly shows us that sin is rebellion against God. And God never intended for man to sin, but He gave man a free will to choose his own course. 
And God put man in that perfect environment, again in the garden. And man chose to sin. And at the moment that man, Adam and Eve, chose to sin against God, again, they lost their state of peace. They became afraid. They were hiding from God. They were naked. They made leaves to cover themselves. Uh, and that's not what God wants for your life or my life. God wants us to have peace with him. We talked about it. Let me just kind of reiterate again. Uh, Isaiah saying that Jesus would be called the Prince of Peace. The angels declare peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And we see this, you know, this, this promise of peace. That's what they were waiting for, the promise of a Savior. And the, the word peace we, in Hebrew, it's pronounced shalom. Uh, but peace is shown in the Old Testament through sacrifices. And this is one of the first places that we see this, kind of like the connecting the dots for us, that we see that you know, we talk about types and shadows. We, we see in the Old Testament pictures uh, of, and types of what's forthcoming in the future. And so when, when, when God told Adam and Eve and, and uh, Moses and the law came and there was the shedding of blood, the Bible says that without the shame of sacrifice, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so God used this temporary form of sacrifice, the animal sacrifice, to show that one day that someone greater than an animal was coming, that his son Jesus would come, and one sacrifice would be made for all of mankind one time, and that uh, would be the end of sacrifices. But until that time, we see this kind of pattern of what God wanted mankind to do. And in Exodus chapter 20, it says, you must make an atonement on an altar made of earth and you will sacrifice on it. You will sacrifice your burnt offerings and your peace offerings. And let me just kind of explain that to you. A burnt offering was totally consumed. The burnt offering was absolutely consumed. But the peace offering, which is sometimes called a fellowship offering or a meal offering, is between when two people sit down and have a meal together. And so in the peace offering, part of that sacrifice would go to the priest and part of it would go back to the person that made the sacrifice. And that's why we see why it's so important. You know, you see that, you know, that Jesus was accused of being a friend of sinners. He was accused of eating and drinking with sinners. And, and that's what, this, that's what this, uh, this meal or this peace offering represents. That, you know, we're having a meal with God. We're, we're sitting down together with God. And in this peace offering, we have peace because... You know, we've, we've offered our sacrifices and we can have this time of peace. But we know from the Hebrew writer that it didn't last long. It wasn't, you know, like an eternal type peace that only could come through God's Son, Jesus Christ. And so God taught us that through the animal sacrifices, this substitutionary death on the cross uh, that Jesus was making for us. And we talk, we talk about this all the time. It's called the great exchange where God took all of my sin and all of your sin. And, you know, it says that the Bible says that he placed it all his Jesus. He took all of our sins and placed it on Jesus. And he took all of Jesus' righteousness, all of his goodness. Remember, the, John the Baptist says about Jesus that here's the Lamb of God that's taken away the sins of the world. And we know that he was the perfect sacrifice, that there was no sin in him or with him. And so God took all of 
my sin and your sin and placed it on Jesus and took all of Jesus' righteousness and all of his goodness and placed it on us. And that's why the Bible says that if there had been a law or a commandment that would have been right, that would have brought righteousness, then righteousness would have come through the law. But there is no law. There is no commandment that brings righteousness. Because the Bible says that he, speaking about Jesus, who knew no sin, was made to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God through him. And finally, in Ephesians in chapter 2, it says that for he, speaking about Jesus, himself is our peace, who has made both one, talking about Jew and Gentile. He's broken down the middle wall of separation. And, you know, let me just explain that to you. In the temple, there were two rooms. Uh, one was called the Holy of Holies, and the other one was called just the temple. And in the Holy of Holies, the high priest would go in once a year and make sacrifice or atonement for the sins of the people. But remember when Jesus was on the cross, the Bible says that that wall that separated the people from the Holy of Holies where God was, where it represented the presence of God. The Bible says that when Jesus was dying on the cross, there was a great earthquake. And that veil or that wall between the Holy of Holies and where the people were, that the people were in half, and which symbolically represented that the people now have access to God through Jesus Christ. That he has made, God has made him to be our peace. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished it in his flesh. The enmity, the enmity, that means the deep-rooted hatred or the, um, this, it, it's just like we're, we were irreconcilable with God. And I don't know whether you know this or not, that when you were born, you were born, you know, a sinner. And there were no good things that you could do to make you right in the presence of God. I mean, you could give all that you had away, all the money that you had. You could attend church every day of your life. You could read your Bible. You could read that entire Bible every day, all of your life. You could pray every day, all of your life. But if you hadn't received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it meant absolutely nothing. And I want you to think about this. And, you know, this is so important for us to see because in our natural minds, we don't really, I don't think we get it. But there are some things that God has done. I said this last week. There's some things that God has done, some signs that God has left us. For example, every time that you write a date on a check and every time you write a date on a letter, what you're saying is that today is December the 27th, uh, 2015. What does that mean? That means that it's been 2,015 years since Jesus Christ came to this earth. And Jesus, I mean, all of time and all of history is divided into two parts. That which is before Christ and that which is after Christ. And it's a sign that God has given us. That God has said that he has given Jesus a name that's greater, listen, that's greater than than any name out there. 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will come to God through Jesus Christ as Lord. And so that when we come to him and we come to God through him, we have peace with God. It's just like, you know, it's very customary today that, you know, in, in tribal parts and villages of Africa, that if you're going into the, uh, to a village to meet the, the village chief, you would bring what is called a peace offering. I mean, it could be a goat, it could be some chickens, it could be anything, you know, but you would bring a gift, a peace offering. I'm coming in peace, is what they're really saying. I'm coming to this village in peace. God sent his son to this world saying, I'm coming in peace, and you can have peace with me that you and I, God is saying that you and I can be reconciled because of what Jesus Christ has done.